Welcome to Highway Christian Community Sermon Downloads. For more sermons, please visit our website. We know you will be blessed as you listen. Take care and God bless. Well, good evening. Welcome to everyone. We are going to launch into this topic around the Word of God, the Scripture. Those of you that uh, were here Sunday morning, um, I shared reasons why I believe the Scripture is the Word of God. First reason being that Jesus referred to it as the Word of God. And then those that he referred to in the Old Testament, the prophets and apostles, introduced their letters as, Thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to Amos. And then his disciples and the apostles referred to the scripture as the word of God. And Peter even then refers to the writings of Paul as being scripture. Uh, so, so those are the good reasons. I believe the scripture is the word of God, just from an internal point of view. One of these Monday nights, we're going to look at external reasons why we believe or why the Bible is believable in terms of archaeological and other uh, factors. But um, at the end of the day, we understand that these things come by revelation at a large degree. The Bible, like Jesus, was both human, but he was also divine. And you can't separate the two. The two are together. And yes, the Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40 different uh, authors um, in 66 books that were then preserved and recognized by the early church, the first church, as being scripture. And uh, there was a whole discussion and synods and conferences around some of the extra-biblical writings and what disqualified it. But at some point... We believe the Holy Spirit was involved on the, even the human side, even in man's uh, um, failings. And we'll see in some of the transmission in the Middle Ages that it, it's, it's wrong to think that the Bible fell out of heaven like this magical book. It was transcribed by people that in a room like this, uh, a priest would get up and then the, all the copyists, you'd all be sitting with your pens and paper, or not pens exactly, but... Your, your scrub, your, uh, you'd scrub out. And, you know, if you put a comma or a full stop in the wrong place, it makes a big difference. But fortunately, because the um, transcription was among not just one person to one person, it was one person to dozens of scribes, um, those errors could be picked up. Because if Bill put, the question, put a question mark, we should have put an exclamation mark. But in all the other papyri and documents and early translations that are analyzed, you see uh, there was actually an exclamation mark. Then you would discount that one. And that was the process of textual um, criticism, textual f- forming of, from the original languages. Because, of course, coming into English or any other language, something is lost. So most theologians would agree that we believe the Bible is inerrant, without fault, in its original writing. Because through translation, things are lost. And even then, in the copying of it, some minor mistakes were made around just, you know, if you write the words butter and the words fly, and you don't put a space in between, you've got a very different picture to to being butter or a fly, and, and, and words like that, but it will get picked up quite easily. You, you, even today you get a Greek, it's called a Greek apparatus, where you can go through the listings of different variants on a certain word, and then you can very quickly, with a, a little bit of help from the theological brothers, see why the error was made. Was it just a, a, a letter written the wrong way? Was it two words that were mixed was there punctuation errors or whatever else? Um, but we believe that the Bible is human, but we believe it's divine. So that's kind of an introduction. Welcome to this evening. And uh, I must say, after the four-week break, it took a lot of cranking up to get the engines turning. <laughs> so <clears throat> I trust you'll have the anointing of wakefulness tonight. 
I, I do want to say right from the outset that this session tonight is going to be a bit theoretical, and a lot's going to come from my side, but then next week it's going to move into the practical application of this. So next week will be a lot more uh, discussion, um, dialogue, and that type of thing. But we need to lay a foundation tonight about responsibly going to the Bible and interpreting. And there are some principles and rules around that that, that that help us. Because you must remember, when we take a scripture out of Corinthians, in fact, maybe someone can turn to 2 Timothy 4 verse 13. Um, Anne, will you do that? Thanks. Um, if, you, if you go to Corinthians, you must remember, things were written to a specific audience covering a specific issue. That's how the New Testament largely was written. Um, yes, there are some narratives, like the Gospels, but the epistles are written uh, to address shifts in the church and to bring corrections. So sometimes it's like listening to one side of a phone call when your wife's on the telephone, and uh, you just hear her saying, no, 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 you don't go there. Go to the shop next to that, and you'll find if you go. And you're trying to work out exactly what the person on the other side is saying. And sometimes in the epistles, it feels a bit like that, especially the book of Corinthians, because Paul is addressing issues that aren't necessarily our issues. So how do you take those case-bound cultural contexts and bring them into today's situation? Well, sometimes you can quite easily because they're transferable. It's kind of um, comparable to a present situation. Other times, they just give you principles that you need to apply. And then there are times... And would you read us just that verse? When you come, when you come bring the cloak that I left with Corpus at Troas and my scrolls. Okay, thank you. So Corpus uh, was in Troas with Paul's jacket that he left. Now, do you want to make some exegetical sense of that? <laughs> How do we apply that to 21st century living? other than sometimes we just need people to do favors for us, you know. But, you know, just because it's written there, it had a case-specific situation. It was Paul's real jacket. And there was a real person called Carpus, And there's a real town called Traes. And we can't reproduce that perfectly in our modern situation. So understanding some of those principles, and we, I'm going to go through, I'm going to try not spend too much time in, on the introduction side. But you get it. To the Corinthians, they had a problem with food being offered to idols. We don't have that same problem today. But we can distill certain timeless principles out of that that can relate to the present. And we've got to realize in translating and in interpreting the Bible, there are some peripheral things. You know, the Bible in one place in Corinthians talks about baptizing the dead, for the dead. One account. You, you can't make a doctrine about a one verse. You've got to find out what was the thinking around that and why did he say it. And uh, fortunately, we got some brilliant work today. We can't all be theologians, can't all be know all the original languages, but we can use the work of those who did. So um, there, there are many cases like that in Scripture. And we've got to rather just stick with the main doctrines, uh, of who God is, who man is, uh, redemption history. All right. So just to kick off now, I want to differentiate between, well, let me ask you, who knows the difference between exegesis and hermeneutics? Just give us a quick definition. Very fancy words with very simple meanings. Exegesis is just the intense study of what this meant to the people then. Because it's not going to mean anything to us today that it didn't mean to the people it was written to. Paul was talking about a real jacket he left in Troas. He wasn't just talking about some mystical anointing and mantle of glory, like some might make that verse to mean. It actually had a real meaning then. That's exegesis. Hermeneutics is the distilling of the principles and defining what is comparable to our present situation. So just two different words, and you might hear them, and it's good to know. So exegesis is the study of what the word, 
what the verse meant to the people it was written to. Hermeneutics is the application of that into, the, into a principle for us here and now. And you'll hear this said over and over again. A scripture will never mean anything to us now what it didn't mean then. That is an important uh, uh, part of responsible interpretation of Scripture. So before uh, we're going to get into the, what they call a hermeneutical spiral, but just stick with me, some big words, different translations. Have you ever w- walked into a bookshop and thought, oh, all these different translations, and if you read the same verse in five different ones, ranging from the message to the King James, can be very different. And uh, these are the three basic uh, different ones. Someone needs to help me learn PowerPoint, how to bring these up one at a time. I think it's called animating. Can someone teach me how to do that sometime? Because this is very frustrating. Thank you. Um, literal would just be the Greek is taken as it is, and it's put as literal word for word as possible. Translations like the King James uh, would, would go along that, the American Standard Version. That's a formal equivalence. The dynamic equivalence is where they've taken the, the wording and try to bring it into what the wording then would mean best today. And that's uh, functional equivalence. And then paraphrase, it's more free translation like the Message Bible that kind of just gives you the flow of, of the whole meaning. Dynamic equivalent is where we usually pitch. NRV would be, that ESV would be between the dynamic and literal. It, it's a bit like you know, trying to translate an Afrikaans joke into English. <laughs> Take some difficulty, you know. It's, um, it's a bit like uh, the young lady in Cape Town at the, walking past the guys on the boat, and they're whistling at her, and she says, Hey, Jamie, this skip on your neck, blaze still. Now, how do you take that and put it in English? You with the neck, the ship around your neck, please be quiet. It's just not the same, eh? Jamie, this skip on your neck, blaze still. I mean, that's just beautiful. So, so to take a language and translate it, sometimes you have to uh, be functionally I- equivalent. Um, then added to this, another thing, laying foundations and foundations all come together at the end, so just bear with, are different interpretive models. This just means different ways of going to the Scripture, the different glasses you wear. And there are several of them. So um, it's a bit naive to think that... Uh, all theologians of all time have, have seen the Bible exactly the same. They've come at it from different angles. And um, once again, to say we can use the work of those who've gone before us. But different interpretive models would, would include um, a literary approach. That would be like a approaching a document by Socrates or Aristotle or, or the historian Josephus. It's just going um, to, the, to the text with uh, analysis, plot, character, themes, dissecting it as a, a fantastic piece of literature, but not necessarily ascribing it to divine authorship. The second one is a philosophical approach. That would be very much, what does it mean to me in my situation. So I just read the verse, asking the question, what does this mean to me? Without any thought to what was its original intent when it was spoken, what is the context? Uh, And you can see there's weaknesses in these approaches because you can end up making the Bible say anything you wanted to. Uh, This philosophical approach can also be the devotional approach, which is not a bad approach, but we don't just go to the Bible with a a mindset of, what does this mean to me? To do good study of the word, we have to ask the question, what did it mean to who it was written? The canonical approach to interpreting scripture would be um, kind of the, 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 Western, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, believed that the Bible was only for the church and could only be understood within a community of believers to bring spiritual formation, and it needed to be taught by a bishop 
and from the Pope down. They gave it the word ex cathedra, which means that the Pope or the Bishop would speak as if God was speaking. And only they had the authority and the expertise to actually tell you what the Bible means. That was very strong during the Middle Ages and Dark Ages. One of the reasons for that was the illiteracy rate. People couldn't read, so they needed to go to a town hall gathering, church uh, meeting, where they could have the scriptures read. Most people couldn't even read. But that view of seeing things puts the bishops up as the specialists and everyone else uh, as the recipients. The allegorical uh, approach to the Bible is where a hidden, deeper meaning is sought in everything. This was very popular again in the Middle Ages, but it pops up every now and then. It's where, you know, Jonah, uh, Noah, Noah's ark meant something because it was wood. The wood represented the cross. So the cross was on the water, and all the animals were actually the sins of the world that were on the cross floating in the water. And they would, be, they would look for all these deeper, hidden meanings that the original author never intended in the first place, but it created this like super spirituality of we understand the true, hidden wow, meanings of the Bible. And that spirit's still around. When everyone, anyone comes with an interpretation that only they got from an angel in the middle of the night. No one else has seen this before. I'm very nervous of that, especially when it's allegorical and these deeper hidden meanings that nobody else can, can see. Then there's the literal uh, interpretation, which is just the, also the here and now. There's no thought of the social culture factors, uh, often a cop-out for lazy exegesis. Because it's much easier just to say, oh, well, it says in Corinthians that a man with long hair, it's an abomination to God. And if it was good for Corinthians, it's good for now. Let's just accept it. You know? Now, there's principles we can derive out of this. Once we understand what the cult- culture was, and when Paul said women should wear covering, there was a reason in the social cultural environment they lived in that he didn't want to create stumbling blocks. It's a bit like... If you're to make a comparable principle out of that today, it would be like someone getting up to lead worship who's in a rush to go down to surf after church in a competition with a valid reason to arrive here on a speedo and a guitar. <laughs> I mean, it's just going to be uh, distracting, to say the least. You know? Okay, you can take that picture out of your mind now. But this is the issue that Paul was dealing with when he said, woman... Please just put your keep your head covered, man. Don't grow long, long hair. Just, but that's never mentioned to any of the other churches in the New Testament. It was case case specific. Yet whole denominations have been formed out of those teachings and made that their anchors to you know the revelation. A literal approach, often just an excuse for not wanting to do good Bible interpretation. Then we come to the historic. It's called the HCG the historical, critical, grammatical approach. Um, This begins with the assumption that the primary meaning is what the author meant when he wrote it to a case-specific situation. It's kind of the view that most evangelicals and most of Christian world you've ever been exposed to believe. Uh, It's called the, uh, the historical, critical, grammatical approach. It's where you... uh, take words and f- at, at what they mean in their context. Because, you know, a word on its own um, only means something when it's in a sentence. And that same word can be used in different sentences. If I just say bored, some of you say, yeah, yeah, you described how I'm feeling. Someone else might think of a committee meeting they had this afternoon. Someone else might think of the way they ironed their clothes this morning. Someone else, you know, so, so a historical view takes a history into account. It takes a, a critical, grammatical view of Scripture. And then the last one is the RH, which is the redemption history. And this is the approach to Scripture where we believe Jesus is central to the whole story. So we would go to Genesis with a view of seeing the crimson thread starting in the garden, God's promise to Eve, and how it winds through covenant families into the genealogies we see in Matthew. Abraham begat, Jacob begat, Joshua begat, to David. And every generation God would come and reveal himself, but it was all part of this master plan 
of bringing about revelation of Jesus Christ as Messiah. And um, that is a very strong um, approach to Scripture, but it has to be based on the historical, critical, grammatical approach. Or else it can become allegorical. We start making things mean things that they never really meant. So there's got to be honest approach to the glasses we're going to wear when we come to the Scripture. And uh, in our circles, as I say, number six and number seven blend together as being the approach we take, opposed to uh, just being a literary document subject to scrutiny and outside of God's authorship or needing the Pope or the Bishop to interpret it or just being philosophically existential. What does it mean to me in my present predicament right now? Um, Okay, are you with me so far? I'm shooting, firing through these things, quite a bit of theory. We'll land this somewhere and you'll see how we're going to apply it. Any question pertinent to clarifying anything said so far? Again, I apologize for just flying through this. Okay, I'm sure there'll be some questions. So, now we're going to talk about this historical, the, the HCG approach to Bible interpreting. And I've labeled it the, the three worlds of the text. There's three worlds of the text. Uh, there's the world behind the text, the world of the text, and then the world of the reader. That's you and I. So we, we, we can take these uh, one at a time. And remember, these notes will be on the website. They'll be under the little tab, Discipleship. And part of this evening, and even building up over the next four, four weeks, is that if we're going to pass on an honest and responsible Bible knowledge to the next generation, if we're going to live with the Word burning in our own hearts to be able to pass on to others, then these things are good to know, and these things are important to know. I mean, we can criticize the Catholic Church for its canonical approach to interpreting the Scripture, but the Pentecostal Church got into such trouble with literalism and allegoricalism that there were about 15,000 different denominations within 50 years. At least the Catholic Church stayed one. I might not want to swap those alternatives, but you get my point that um, we need to have some background understanding to why we believe. So the first one is the world of the text. Um, Historically speaking, we'd all agree that it makes sense to understand the 8th century before Christ background of Amos and Hosea and Isaiah, and even that Hagar prophesied post-exile. Knowing what it was like to prophesy before the exile, 850, uh, 750 BC, or after the exile, makes a big difference in how we read the minor prophets. You don't have to grasp all this. You don't have to retain all this. Just let it just lay layer upon layer, filter into your, your consciousness. So, so knowing the world behind the text was the history. What was happening historically at that stage? Secondly, socially and culturally, again, we would agree that it makes sense to understand the difference between the cities of Corinth and Philippi. There was different as Tokyo and, and Peter Maritzburg back in the day. I mean, they were closer, but their cultures and the way they saw things, their social, their, 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 their worldviews, the way they did things, to have a little bit of insight into how they were different and what distinguished them, you'd also understand the letters written to them in a very different way. And then ideological. This is the, uh, the world behind the text. Ideologically, we'd, we'd agree that it makes sense to understand what, was the, what were the messi- messianic expectations of the people living at the time of John the Baptist. What were their 
views on Messiah. Now, now we're not going to all be Bible professors. We're not going to all master all the biblical languages. That's why I say again, we can use the work of those who have given us such a rich heritage into these very topics. We're so spoiled today to, to get behind the text the world, and discover the world behind the text. It's a very interesting world, and I know it's not com- first on your mind right now compared to the rugby and the World Cup soccer, but I tell you, when you get into that stuff, it's almost addictive because it changes the way you read one book to the next. Um, okay, so that's the world behind the text. Then you've got the world of the text itself. And there we have, firstly, textual criticism. I touched on that briefly just now when I spoke about the, um, the proliferation of the scribes writing the Scripture, that there are 5,500 five extant, meaning present, copies of various stages of the Bible's transmission. And all those documents have been consolidated and analyzed to see where the various differences, discrepancies, words joined, words separated, different words used, and then taking the, um, the totality of, of all those documents, weeding out what seemed to be the most legitimate and what seemed to be uh, uh, obviously fraudulent or cop- later uh, copies of copies of copies of copies. And that job in the 18th century had a lot of interest. People devoted their lives, written books. You can't believe how clever some people out there are in terms of just genius minds. I read some of their work sometimes and I go, shit, it's a good job they're going to never try to be like me because I'm never going to try and be like them. I mean, these people are, I mean, they are geniuses. They memorize those 5,500 documents. I mean, they... It's just it it's, it's makes us mortals feel very mortal when when we consider um, the, the the grammar the world of the text the second one there is the grammar the, the actual language and and languages have rules you know you you and languages aren't that different it's a, ma- a study of languages to me second to theology is the most interesting study in the world the the parts of speech just understanding. Every language has a verb. Every language has a, a subjective noun. And not, uh, uh, some, some languages, all languages have, have adverbs describing the verb. Every language has an adjective describing the noun. Every language has pronouns referring back to the antecedent of the, of the sentence. Languages are fascinating. God has given us such an amazing thing. We, that's what makes us different to all other species, is our ability to think and communicate about stuff by sounds that come out of our, our vocal cords. You're tracking with me tonight because there's a resonance of sound waves going out. And every sentence has got a structure to it and a form to it. Grammar is a fascinating subject. And uh, understanding the grammar of the, the, the Hebrew, to a lesser degree, I think, the, the uh, Syriac, and then to a greater degree, the Greek, are the most interesting languages to study. But again, that's not for everybody. A lot of the work has been done, and we have to trust some of those who've done the good work on those topics. But that's the, 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 the world of the text. Uh, and language changes over time. You know that, eh? I mean, you go read English that's a thousand years old. You probably won't understand it. Words have changed, yeah? Words have changed, and even the Greek. There is a, there are hundreds of thousands of documents written from the, the, the Aristotles and the Socrates, which is hundreds of years before Jesus, in Greek, and letters, casual people just writing to loved ones. You read some of those letters, a father speaking about our priorities of his daughter, and written like 450 years BC. But from about 300 BC, the Greek. Language changed a bit into what was, became the Koine period until about 300 AD. So we have 600 years of outside of the Bible literature that the theologians can go to to find out what the meanings and background explanations of words, 
grammar, um, and those type of things. The hermeneutical spiral is what we're going to come to in just a moment. So I'm going to jump over that one. Okay, so we've looked at the world behind the text. We've looked at the world of the text. And then we have the world of the reader. Now, this is, this is quite uh, important because we sit 2,000 years later and we bring our presuppositions to the table. We bring our knowledge, our frame of reference. And we can't help do that because different things mean different things to different people. And that's why we need one another and the different gifts in operation because we don't individually have all the truth or can see all the truth. And here's a fascinating statement. I think it's in your notes. What one believes about the Bible is the most important condition of how you will interpret the Bible. What one believes about the Bible is the most important condition of how you're going to interpret the Bible. So our approach to it. Do we hold it up as human? Yes, but divine? Because then I'm going to approach it very differently. I'm going to come to it differently. I'm going to be open to it very differently. And then secondly, truth be told, cognitive capacity for study. Some people have a better grasp of languages. Some people have a better a, a, a grasp of, of analogies and idioms and um, retention. Some people can quote the whole Bible. I, I know I've got friends who can quote virtually the whole New Testament. But you don't have to be able to do that to get revelation on the Word of God. And the Bible is written so beautifully through so many different stories, through so many different genres, that it appeals to, to every segment of society and every level of people like Smith Wigglesworth who were, were illiterate, but he could read the Bible. And you know why? Because he memorized the Bible. He couldn't actually read it, but he knew. If he was in John chapter 15, he started off saying, in my father's house are many mansions. And if he was in, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, you'd say, you know, what 1 Corinthians 13 says. <laughs> Some people, so, so just because he was illiterate didn't make him a fool. He was a brilliant man. He just never learned how to read and write. Big deal, he was a plumber. But he got revelation in the Word of God, and he went out and he changed nations. But having said that, the person who's reading, their approach, their cognitive capacity, and then personal impact. That, that, that just has a lot to say about um, being able to visualize it, being able to allow it to touch your heart, getting solace and warmth and encouragement. Some people fl flow very easily with that. You know, they're, they're, they'll read a scripture and just like start weeping. I, I was in a meeting the other day. A guy read this odd piece of verse and he started weeping, couldn't carry on reading. I just thought, wow, I want to get soft like that again to the word. You know, there, there's the, when we go to the scripture, the world of the reader is um, our ability to, to be personally impacted, to visualize it, to enter into it, to, to be affected by the scripture. So those are uh, three things around uh, the grammatical, historical approach to to interpreting the Bible. Then we come to the next one, which is the hermeneutical spiral. This, this is really the essence of what we should be talking about tonight. A lot of what's been said is just like giving some background information. But when we come to this, all that fancy word means is we ask the right questions. We go in circles. Who is he talking to? Who is speaking? What was the situation? Why did he say that? And we go around asking questions. Who, what, where, what? And the big question is the, so what? What's this all about? And um, let me just take you through some of these questions in the hermeneutical uh, uh, spiral. The first one is, is situation. 
It's the who is speaking to who. In the book of Romans, that would be quite easy to figure out. Who is writing? Paul. But who is he writing to? You'd have to read the book a few times to actually realize he's speaking to a group of different people. And some of them he identifies and some of them he doesn't. And then, of course, when we go to the good dictionaries and the good, con- the good uh, commentaries, they do all the hard work for us. But that's kind of cheating a little bit. Something quite nice about getting in there yourself and asking yourself who is speaking to who and why. The why is what is the reason? Like I said earlier, the New Testament epistles were written to address drifts, to address false doctrines. Galatians would be written because they were slipping back into legalism and mixing law and grace. So there was a clear mandate on Paul to hit that thing. But when he writes to Timothy, he's got a different sound to his voice. So what was the situation? That's the first step in the hermeneutical circle. The second one is genre. That just means that uh, you put on different glasses when you read different types of literature. You know, when you read a love letter from your, your, your darling that's been put in your sandwiches and you, lunchtime you open and you got this, you read it different, very differently to the Sunday morning newspaper or the financial report at the committee meeting. Just because we tune our brains differently to different genres. So we've got to understand some parts of the Bible are historical. They're clearly historical. And you've got to understand when you read Kings and Chronicles, that they, uh, Nehemiah, where he fits in, Ezra, where he fits in. Then there's narrative. That's just stories. So we read about Samson. We read about uh, Noah. We read about Jesus. In Acts, a lot, there's a lot of narrative, again, around Paul. Uh, then there's the prophetic glasses we've got to put on when we're reading the minor prophets. Re- you read Isaiah differently to how you read the Gospel of Mark. Because one's narrative... One's historical. Then there's poetry. God speaks through poets. And many books in the Bible are written with that. Even Psalms would be poetry. Wisdom literature. Proverbs and other books like that. Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of wisdom. Uh, There's wisdom in the whole Bible, but they specifically uh, to enrich us in in, in wisdom. Knowledge of righteousness. Right and wrong. Um, then there's doctrinal. That would be mostly New Testament, and those would be the epistles where Paul is writing to correct. But remember, even in those epistles, there's slightly different flavors because when Paul writes to the Romans, he's writing to address one thing, so he doesn't mince his words. He just gets straight into righteousness and justification, reigning in life. Whereas he writes to the Corinthians, he goes in at a whole different tangent because he's addressing a different doctrinal situation. And then there's the apocalyptic. And you can't read the book of Revelations the way you read the Psalms. And like, like the young guy went to his pastor and said, I've just become a Christian and I need to do something. What must I do? He said, well, read your Bible. He says, okay. Next week, comes the pastor and says, I started reading, but I'm very confused. He says, well, what are you reading? He says, I'm reading Revelations. Says, oh, man, I should have really got you reading something else first. Well, did you get anything out of it? Well, not really, but hey, in the end we win, hey. <laughs> so the different genres of Scripture will also affect how we go about our hermeneutical spiral. Then there's the context. Anything out of context can become a pretext. A word means something because it's in a sentence. A sentence means something because it's in a paragraph. That paragraph means something because it's in a specific genre of literature. And uh, there's words, phrases, and paragraphs, and even the book it's in. And then there's the covenants. And you read something like David saying, God, don't take your spirit from me. I don't apply that to myself as a new covenant believer anymore because I'm in a whole new covenant. So I read that with a sense of appreciation, not with arrogance, but with a, wow, imagine having to live that kind of life where you're fearing when you just look wrong or do something, you're going to get an eye poked out or a hand chopped off or God's going to take his spirit from you. Wow, we've come into freedom in this wonderful new message. All those Old Testament prophets have only been made perfect by us in this covenant we're living in. Context. And then cross-referencing. Obviously, 
Chronicles can be cross-referenced with Samuel. Uh, Kings can be cross-referenced with Chronicles and Nehemiah and some of the prophets who prophesied during that time. The Gospels can be be cross-referenced, different events happening. Recognizing, again, you've got four different people at the accident scene. One is taken up with all the glass and the blood, and they write extensively about that. But someone else just thinks about the crying family that are bereaved and in pain, and they write about that. And then someone else come, the other, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have got very um, coming at it with different uh, flavors, but they, their message together makes a complete message. I'm glad that there are four Gospels. So that's, that's the, the, the third step in the, the hermeneutical spiral. The fourth step, and this, this is not really a step, but this is just uh, to say that We've been blessed with so many good study aids. I know as a young believer, I was taught it's only the Bible. You know, God gave you a pencil. You don't need a sharpener. You know, no, stay away from all other books. Other books will just confuse you. And I kept myself ignorant for quite a long time with that approach. But as you realize that a few good translations is better than just one translation, a, a, a dynamic equivalent and a paraphrase. A paraphrase and a literal. Because you're not, we're not going to master original languages, but reading in different translations is the best and the closest. And you get very close. Because those guys, those translation committees are, are really, those Bibles I mentioned, they, they're good guys. And they are brilliant, brilliant minds and, and grammaticians, and if that's a word or whatever. Um, a few good translations of the Bible. A concordance. Every, when asked did you use a concordance? Just take a word, spirit, yeah. Take a word, uh, cloak. <laughs> and you'll see Paul left his cloak. <laughs> you'll see, you know, Jesus at, at the cross, they gambled for his cloak. You know, you, you'll see a, a larger passed on his cloak. And, um, you can take one word and go through a concordance and, and, and weave a beautiful picture and a, a message together that... Uh, has got principles. A Bible dictionary, that's just the guys who have helped you find out what was going on in the different places at different times, the different cultures. Uh, a reputable commentary is, is, is good because it'll take the difficult passages, hard to understand ones, and a good commentary will give you the, the fors and against, not just one stereotype view. And then the systematic theology books, that just that's the book that takes the doctrine of God and Genesis to Revelations. Everything said about God takes man. Everything said about man, Genesis to Revelations. Everything said about Satan, Genesis to Revelations. Everything said about blood, Genesis to and, and and weaves those systematic through the Bible doctrines. The, the, those five books, and then there's lots of other aids and, and helps. You know, I know the one you're most familiar with is Wikipedia. And, uh, and Google, yeah. So what's her name again? Siri. Siri. She helps me with everything. Siri, what am I going to preach on Sunday? I haven't got a clue. So, um, but those five, five books, in terms of wanting to get your hermeneutical spiral working, who said what to who, why, under what circumstances, what was the situation, what to do with some of the difficult passages. Those are the main study. Okay, now we're going to get into some general rules of interpretation. And um, we're going to finish. I think this is the last one. It's never going to mean now what it didn't mean then. Number one. Number two, every word is for us, but not every word is to us. So the Bible really said, Paul says to Timothy, have a little bit of wine for your stomach. Now that blows your hair back, great. But he wasn't giving license to that. But it was real intoxicating wine, by the way. The story that it became grape juice, that was just some guys much later on who, who got a bit insecure. Yeah, Paul's, Paul was warning them not to drink that stuff at the communion because they were getting drunk, so... How you get drunk on non-intoxicating wine? <laughs> hey, we believe in so many things. Eh? You know, have you heard the one? Uh, it's more difficult for 
for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to, to get through the eye of the needle. And there was this, this gate in the wall that a camel had to go down and scrape through. And it. There's only one problem with that. There was no such gate. In about 850 AD, one of the uh, church fathers of that time tried to make something out of that scripture because it couldn't possibly mean that it's impossible, which was Jesus was actually saying. It's impossible. He was trying to make a point. It's impossible. It cannot be done. But with God, all things are possible. That, what, what does that say? Grace. He wasn't saying that you can, if you really try hard and get down and scrape and you can get through. But for this medieval monk, it was just too good to be true. So he had to find a way around it. And he came up with this whole story about there was this one gate in the wall that was called the eye of the needle. No other history bears that out. How did I get onto that? Okay. Every word is for us. But not every word is to us. Paul really says to the Corinthians, greet each other with a holy kiss. Not license to go around kissing all the pretty girls. But the principle from that is, when you greet, do it from your heart. And it really meant then that they kissed each other. I think, the, in fact, the, the, the French still got this mwah, 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 mwah way about them. But so, 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 but, uh, but real men shake hands. You, you don't want to go try to greet Steve on Sunday morning with a kiss, okay? So, what, what is the timeless principle? Every word is for us, but not every word is to us. Um, the Old Testament is, is full of that. Because, because the Old Testament, there's a lot of stuff said. That, that's got to be understood in the context of progressive revelation. And the Hebrew language often, I'm running ahead of myself because this is further down. Um, the, yeah, the next one. Permissive and causative will and acts of God. Often something is stated like, and God brought his hand down and smashed uh, Nero. But, but actually, they're describing as something that happened Directly as if God was personally involved in it. Now, now I know one's got to be careful around that a little bit, but not every word is for us, but not every word is to us. As a principle, permissive and causative will of God, truly stated, not necessarily a statement of truth. What, what, I mean, what do you mean by that? Well, when, when David cried out and said, said, um, I'm just a dog. You know? It's truly stated, but it's not a statement of truth. Or, or even Job. You know, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job really said that. It's truly stated. I don't know if it's a statement of truth. When you examine the full bulk of Scripture and progressive revelation, God doesn't give and take away. Uh, you know, you, we could discuss these and probably spend the whole night on them. But my point is just in the back of my mind always, this is truly stated, but is this a statement of truth? Um, Jesus on the cross even cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was that truly stated? Did Jesus really say that? Was that a statement of truth? As a young believer, I used to think, you know, God had to turn his face because I couldn't bear to look at the sin. You know, it doesn't make sense when you examine the whole lot of Scripture. I mean, Lucifer went into the presence of God. I mean, God turned his back on his son. Come on, give me a break. But is that how Jesus felt right then? Yes. Sometimes we feel like that. doesn't make it true. Okay. Descriptive and prescriptive. Some things in Scripture are describing a situation. There were tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost. But it's not prescriptive. It's not saying you can't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit if there's no tongues of fire. It's just telling you what happened. But it's not prescribing that that's what's going to happen. It's describing what was going on. Um, Jesus' disciples 
he washed his disciples' feet. It's describing what he did. Beautiful thing. But it's not being prescriptive that now every Sunday we come together, we go to the foot washing ceremony. It's describing something. It's not prescribing something. In fact, to be more biblical now to go wash someone's car because that's their form of transport. The reason they had their feet washed is because their feet got dirty traveling. So come on, you drive around, your car's dirty. You want to wash someone's feet, go wash their car. Come on. There's a, there's a, a, a descriptive element in Scripture that we can't say we have to take that and reproduce it identically um, as, a, as a prescription. And um, there's pr- quite a few examples of that. Uh, the, the one would have been Paul, when, when he was on his way to Jerusalem in Acts 21, and Agabus the prophet, and they, all the prophets came and they took Paul's belt and they tied him up and they said, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. And they started, this Bible says, they pleaded, that uses the word, they pleaded with him not to go. But he went. So was he being disobedient? Well, if you read the chapter before, you see that Paul says to the Ephesian elders, the Holy Spirit has already warned me that there's persecution, suffering, and tribulation, but he's told me to go and preach this message boldly. The prophetic word just came to tell him what was going to happen. It was going to describe what was going to happen, the inevitable. But it's not necessarily prescriptive. Okay, then maybe the last one is the Bible interprets the Bible. This is the other um, general rules, if you like, of, of hermeneutics, is that the Bible must interpret the Bible. So if you want to understand the parables, a lot of them, you get to the end of the parable and Jesus tells you what he meant. So how should we interpret the parable? How Jesus interpret it? We let what Jesus says interpret the parable. Um, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, interprets the Old Testament priesthood. Matthew 18, around the cross, and what Jesus explains, Isaiah 53. Paul, going against this prophetic warning, is explained somewhere else. So you read all the accounts before you make a conclusion. The Bible has to interpret itself. It has to line itself up. In Corinthians 5, Paul says to the Corinthians, there's, there's one of the guys sleeping with his mother, his, his stepmother, expel him, kick him out, get rid of him. They went to the extremes. Who knows what that guy went through? So in his next letter, he writes and he says, okay, the guy's been through enough now. Please don't kill him. Bring him back. Love him. Show him mercy. Show him compassion. Thank God we had that second account. Although the church has done a pretty good witch hunt on the first based on that one verse. But be that as it may, you've got to look at the totality of Scripture's God interprets Scripture. That's why we should be regularly reading, because the more it's in our consciousness, the more it welds together and makes sense. And then the last one, I put it just first mention, because I hear a lot of preachers using that, um, the, the law of first mention. So, and what they're saying is that the first time something is mentioned, it's like the first color that goes into the white paint makes the most impact. You, you, you track? You, you, know, you put blue into white, it goes, you put red in, it's not quite red anymore. But you put red in. So they say first mention means that kind of directs that topic. But I, I personally, I struggle with that rule because I believe that you can't build all your doctrine in Genesis. You've got to allow You've got to see that the, the, the new covenant is, is concealed in the old covenant, but revealed in the new covenant. So, so I've got to rather put on new covenant glasses and go to first mention than let first mention. So when you hear someone say that, this is the first mention, so you know, take note, this is the most important thing. Just like a little bit of a ding, ding. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, how are we doing? I'm done with this part of it. So just last thought around what about the words of Jesus? Aren't they the most important words in the Bible? After all, they are in red. Yeah. 
you go read Jesus' words literally. You take them out of the context. You, you allow them to do the work on your heart that needed to be done before you got born again, 10 out of 10. But when you're born again and you go back and you try and apply those same words out of their covenant context, and you try and make it prescriptive to you, then we're going to have a whole lot of stump-clapping Christians on Sunday morning, worshipping the Lord together. You get, you, you, you get my illustration. So the words of Jesus are the most beautiful words in Scripture, no doubt. And when he's talking about the Father, there's no greater revelation than you'll ever get about the Father than when you hear Jesus. So when Jesus is talking about the Father, that's the final word. The kingdom of God, how the kingdom of God operates, that's the final word. That's what Jesus came to teach. But be careful, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the wouldn't sees, the couldn't sees, be very uh, cautious of, of, of just saying, well, it says that there and that settles it. God's word says it, I believe it, that settles it. Ever heard that? So, so when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, when Jesus is talking about the Father, of course, they're the most important words in the scripture. But there are times where you have to contextualize what he's saying. And if you still love me after saying that, then I know you don't have a religious spirit at all. Just something I read out of an amazing book I, I picked up a little while ago is, 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 is what do we do? Um, this is actually quoting uh, Mr. Crowder, who I don't fully endorse in many of his other theology, but what he says about um, Paul's words and Jesus' words is, is very, very interesting. Uh, first of all, Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul's letters were the first inspired writings acknowledged by the church and were distributed before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written so that the Gentiles would understand who this Jesus is that Paul was preaching that was getting them saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. Eh? The Jews understood who Jesus was. The, 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 the Greeks and the... The, the, the Western church, the Roman church, they, they, they needed to find out who this Jesus was. So Paul's letters were circulating before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Mark traveled with and learned from Paul prior to writing the book of Mark. Luke traveled with and learned from Paul prior to writing the book of Luke or Acts. And the book of Acts is largely centered around Paul, who takes center stage. Luke himself was not an eyewitness of Jesus. He learned everything he knew from Paul about Jesus. Because often we get this, yeah, oh, but you know, you guys make a big deal about what Paul says. But what about what Jesus says? Well, Paul was the one who told us what Jesus said. So if you don't like Paul, you've got to throw the whole lot out. There's a thought. Paul had to correct Peter to keep him in line with the gospel. Because he started shifting towards these old roots. And looking towards the temple again and ritualistic belief. And Paul said, if you go that route, Christianity will be dead. Peter was the big gun, eh? Peter makes a point to specifically affirm and validate the letters of Paul. Even men sent from James were not living in line with the message Paul carried. The Lord appeared to Paul and used him to lay the very core foundation and revelation of the cross in the New Testament. The Gospels, accordingly, were written for the sake of the epistles, not the other way around. Very interesting that, because that's often a question that comes up in our Bible interpretation. Why do you guys always end up with what Paul says? Well, there's a few good reasons. But if it wasn't for Paul, we wouldn't hear the rest of the message and what was behind it. And if we didn't have the Old Testament, by the way, we wouldn't have had that velvet background against which this gem of the gospel shines so bright. We wouldn't know why we had to be saved from what we needed to be saved from. We wouldn't know the struggle of man and sin and the, uh, the ridiculousness of, of self-righteousness. So we love the Old Testament. but We love the Old Testament for the reason it was given. 
Now, I'm through a whole lot of theory. You've done amazingly. Where's Bernard? He hasn't fallen asleep. Oh, he's just fallen asleep. Nita, can we hand those things out, please? Um, now, now the fun part comes. Can I have one first? Now's the fun part. Can someone help Nita? Oh, I thought you were going to do back to back. Nita? No, 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 not the whole thing. Oh. Okay, this is a lot more paper than, than I was. Nita's done you all the favor by giving you these notes behind. So, um, but I started off tonight by saying I was going to cover a lot of theory. And this topic I've covered tonight, trust me, we could do this for three months of Mondays. And I do apologize that I've had a rush through. But I've wanted to give you a kind of an overview and appreciation. And now comes the practical part. And next Monday night, we want to apply these principles we've heard about tonight. We want to apply them around a very challenging book, 1 Corinthians. I could have chosen a shorter book. It would have saved you some reading time. But I thought, ah, you know, I'm on a roll now. Got you guys out on a Monday night, can get you to do anything. Even read 1 Corinthians. Can you read through the whole book of 1 Corinthians? 16 chapters. It's going to take you at least 45 minutes. The time you watch one round of golf or tennis or news or one, half, uh, one movie. Okay. Oh, now that I've put that on you. So, so I've got some homework for you. We need to saw this in the office today. And she knew I was giving homework out. She nearly handed in a resignation. <laughs> Thanks for staying with us, Neat. But you'll see there, um, the homework for this week. So when we come next week and we teach into the book of Corinthians, you'll know how we're applying these principles we've learned tonight. So familiar, familiarize yourself with the background and cultural context of the letter. And I've helped you by, on the back side of that page, giving you the Holman Concise Bible Commentary Cultural Overview Introduction to Corinthians. So you don't have to go and get a commentary yourself. You don't have to go and buy a dictionary. Okay? I mean, there's, the, 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 the NRV Study Bible is about six pages, Introduction to Corinthians. So this was one of the more average ones. Okay, so that's, so to have a, to be familiar with the background of Corinth, the letter, and then also what, uh, genre would categorize it as. I, I think it's, um, quite obvious. It's, it's doctrinal. Um, and now the homework for next Monday is this. Read through the letter in one setting to familiarize yourself. Re- preferably aloud. Just read it. Read it. Don't. Be too technical, just read it, get the flow, 1 to 16. You're going to bump into a whole lot of stuff along the way that's going to make you want to stop. Have a pencil if you need and write down, she, have no idea what this judging angels means. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm condemned. (laughs) You know, don't stop and get all introspective and all analytical over it. Just get the flow, have a, have a, a pen with you making notes, asking these questions. Who's writing? Okay, that's a, it's, I'll help you with that one. It's Paul. Okay. Who is he writing to? It changes. And if you're not looking for it, you won't see it. Jews, Greeks, wealthy slaves. And then reconstruct the conversation, questions, problems, attitudes, issues on the other side of the line. Remember, he's writing and saying, now concerning virgins. This is what I have to say, blah, blah, blah. So what was the question that was being asked? What are you with my daughter? Anything specifically mentioned that gives a clue to the problems Paul is addressing? List any repeated phrases, keywords that indicate the subject matter of Paul's response and answer. And then when you bump into those problematic passages, don't try and deal with them just yet. Make a note for further Study. Maybe some of those we'll get to next week. And then just sketch the letter's natural logical divisions. 
See, a lot of your Bibles have got little paragraph comments. Like, Try and ignore those and try and see them for yourself through the book of 1 Corinthians. You see, you see if we learn all about this stuff in the year and we don't take a week or two to actually go and actually do something with it, it's just going to be head knowledge lost. We only retain what we actually prioritize to do. You, you with me? So, so, so write out a little bit of a, a, a logical divisions, not depending on the divisions in your Bible. Remember that in the original writing, there were no chapters and verses. Eh? So sometimes a chapter will flow right over into the next chapter's first few verses before a new thought starts. And we can miss that because we're looking at chapters and verses and the common and the NRV's little statements of what he's doing. So if possible to read a Bible without those. But the point is to, to read it through, make a note of those few things, just read through the, 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 the cultural setting to familiarize yourself. And next Monday night... I'm hoping to dive right into some exegetical quagmire, some challenges, and uh, ask you some questions and what you saw. And in a way, Nita, I'm actually glad now that I see that you attached these notes tonight because a lot of people don't know how to get onto the website and download it themselves. So is that helpful? So you've got everything there nicely. Uh, so, so I said I'd have you out of here by 8 o'clock. This is quite a miracle that we got through this tonight. Can we stand up together? <laughs>